welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. Great episode coming up. I have um, Greg Sargent from the Washington Post. He's a columnist. He writes for the Plum Line. That's his blog in the Washington Post. And he does write from a liberal point of view, but actually I've been enjoying his columns lately uh, because they're fact-based in a lot of areas and calling out Trump and this administration on their crap. So happy to have Greg here this week as my guest. We'll be talking about some of his columns, his book. He wrote a an interesting book that has a great title. Um, how could you not like a book that's called Uncivil War, Democracy in an Age of Trumpian Disinformation and Thunderdome Politics? So he'll be joining me in a little bit to talk about that and to talk a bit about um, what's happening with this China trade stuff that's going on, this this trade war that the president is engaging in now. Um, so we get into that. Oh, he also talks a little bit about conversations he's had with Kellyanne Conway's husband, George Conway. Interesting. He's been communicating with him. So that stay tuned and, and to hear about that. Let's see what's gone on in the last couple of days to catch up a little bit. Oh, so some of you who follow me on Twitter know that I guest hosted The View last Friday. And it's always a good time. I know there's a lot of people who feel some kind of way about The View. Some either really, really like it or they really, really hate hate the show. And, you know, The View, it's been controversial over the years for different reasons, for different people. But I, I really enjoy doing the show and I think they've found a rhythm with their structure now. And I, I actually find guest hosting The View to be uh, a change of pace. You know, it's it's not it's not debating on CNN. It's not, um, uh, you know, those kind of arguments. It, I just I just find it to be a refreshing change of pace. So I'm always grateful when I'm called. I've um, guest hosted five times. I think this was my fifth time. And we had a great show because it was the uh, pre Mother's Day show. And even though I didn't get a chance to give my mom a shout out because um, my mom's awesome. And if you follow me on Twitter, you see that I, I tweet often about my mom and my husband. And I tweeted out some cool pictures of, of my mom and I when I was younger and some recent pictures from Mother's Day. So that's right. We just had Mother's Day pass. So happy Mother's Day to everybody out there. Um, but we had a really cool episode on Friday on The View with artist Sierra. I like Sierra's music, her older stuff. Um, one, two step is one of my favorite hype songs. I just love that song. <laughs> um, she's incredibly talented. Um, she's an incredibly talented dancer. She is beautiful. Oh my gosh. Like in person, she is beautiful inside and out. And if you haven't seen the episode, I encourage you guys to go back. You can watch it. There's, there's clips online. You can watch, watch the back episodes on ABC's app. So you can watch it. It was a really touching episode. She, um, I didn't know about the drama between her and her first son's father, this guy named Future. I don't, I'm old school when it comes to hip hop and R&B. I don't really like the mumble rap stuff that's out now. So I don't know who any of these people are. So apparently this guy is some rapper from Atlanta and he's got like 
five kids by five different women, including Sierra. And I, when I saw a picture of this guy, I'm like, what was she thinking with this guy? But there was a lot of drama with that. And and then she um, ended up with Russell Wilson, who is a great guy. He's one of the good ones and just signed like a $140 million contract for the Seattle Seahawks. Good for him. But uh, he's th- their love is genuinely beautiful. And we highlighted that on the show. And she just, she had a, uh, a daughter with Russell Wilson a couple years ago and she showed video of, of that. It was just, it was just a really touching episode and I'm, I'm glad I was able to be a part of that. So big shout out to ABC and the view for giving me a call and letting me come and be a part of it. And, um, Abby Huntsman is out on maternity leave. So perhaps I'll get a call or two during the summer to come back up and guest host. Um, Anna Navarro is their regular fill-in. So um, when she's out, maybe they'll call me. That'd be cool. So, and if you guys liked the episode with me on The View, let The View know. They list, they watch their um, social media. So let them know. (laughs) Um, So there's that. Uh, Also last week, I had an opportunity to um, attend the Dream Academy Gala. My husband and I have a friend who sits on the board. And what is the Dream Academy? It is an after-school program. It's a mentoring program that targets kids whose parents are incarcerated or one of their parents are incarcerated. And it really does extraordinary work. It started off in DC um, uh, 20 years ago, and they now have chapters all over the country from San Bernardino, California to Houston to Baltimore. And so the Dream Academy, they they um, have this annual event in Washington where they award the mentor of the year. They award some uh, of their students scholarships and things. And it's just really nice to see an organization that gives these kids a chance. You know, a lot of these are kids who are in broken homes. They're in bad neighborhoods. They're in terrible school systems and they don't have anyone who believes in them or who tells them that they can make it. And that's so important. Mentoring is really important. And if you have the opportunity to mentor, if you have the time, you should do it. When I was in college, I did that. I mentored a little bit. And um, my husband and I, we just have really um, crazy schedules. So it makes it difficult for us to mentor now. And, And it's something I really would like to do. But I try to do other things like where, where I can speak on panels or go to back to school day, um, like career days at my friend's schools and things. And they ask me last year, I gave the commencement address for equality charter school in the Bronx in New York, another excellent program that targets just, you know, the kids that are trying to make it. These aren't the super smart, nerdy kids that, you know, go to a science academy or no, these are just the kids from around the way who live in rough neighborhoods whose schools are not up to par and they have a charter school like Equality in the Bronx that gives them a chance. And that that commencement speech was one of the most rewarding I've ever given. And um, that that was um, it was really, really cool just to see the faces of these kids who didn't think they were going to make it make it not only graduate, but also have a chance to go to college. So I just think that that's important. So a really good way to give back. And, and in this day and age where there's so much cynicism and just so much negativity, this was an opportunity to do something that was positive and is positive and 
way to sow into kids' lives because they're the next generation. And there's a, there's so much despair and we really just need to give these kids a chance because a lot of you, there's so much talent, untapped talent, so much potential in these kids if someone just gives them a chance and believes in them. So that was um, what I did last week. Oh, if you are a fan of the show Empire, which I am, my mom got me into Empire, by the way, uh, Giselle, who the character on Empire, played by Nicole Ari Parker, another beautiful actress. You may know her as Terry from Soul Food. Uh, she's played in a number of movies, but um, currently she she has a recurring role as Giselle on Empire. She was there emceeing along with her husband, Boris Kudjo. And he is a very good looking black actor. He's from Germany. Actually, he grew up in Germany. He's biracial and he uh, he speaks fluent German and he's really funny and they are so cute together and they have beautiful kids. So you've probably seen Boris Kudjo in, in a lot of different movies. He um, first came on the scene back in, I think it was 2000 in the movie Love and Basketball. He played Sanaa Lathan's uh, prom date to make... Omar Epps jealous. If you guys saw Love and Basketball, he was also in the movie Brown Sugar, another movie with Sonali then. And he's been in a bunch of other things. And I think now he's in House of Cards. He's got a role in House of Cards. I haven't seen the new season yet. Isn't even, I don't even know if it's even out. I've been lax in my House of Cards watching. I still haven't finished the last year, um, last season. I know I'm so behind. But um, anyway, so they emceed and that was really, that was really cool. And I posted some pictures on Instagram for that. So that's what's uh, been going on there. Um, my mom and I, oh, for Mother's Day, my mom and I, we went to the Kennedy Center here in D.C. Because my mom hangs out with me a lot. She spends a lot of time with me. So she'll come and visit for like weeks at a time. And we don't care because my mom's awesome. So we like having her around. And so like Mother's Day, we're like, well, we kind of, we go to vineyards on a regular basis. We go out to dinner. We go to shows. It's like, I don't know. Mother's Day is kind of like just another day because like every day is, a, is Mother's Day when my mom is here. So it's kind of cool. So we we're looking for things to do. And the weather was so awful in D.C over the weekend it was cold and rainy it was like 50 degrees and freezing rain it was sucked so that kind of took away a lot of the really cool things that were going on because normally it's nice out it's mid-may in the dc area there's vineyards there's lavender farms there's you know outdoor brunches there's i mean there's all kinds of stuff to do but not when it's raining so we kind of had to cancel all our plans and figure out something else to do. So we went to the Kennedy Center to this uh, tango performance. I know, sounds weird, but I'm very eclectic and I love theater. I love the arts. I love the symphony. So going to things like the Kennedy Center is something I enjoy. And it's because my mom exposed me to that stuff when I was a kid, because my mom was was in show business. She was a dancer and she was on Broadway and she had been, um, you know, in traveling theater companies and things. So I grew up around theater and I love it. So I'd never been to a tango performance. So it was like the Pan American Symphony. They were, they were performing. And then there were three pairs of tango dancers, um, performing with the orchestra, with the symphony, man, it was really cool. Tango is so technically difficult. It's, it is, I just really appreciate the skill and the grace and the beauty of it all. It's just beautiful. And then as far as the music, 
again, technically really hard. I played violin until I was 18, from the time I was seven until I was 18. And I still miss playing. I just don't have time. I just didn't anymore once I went to college. But so I understand how hard it is to play some of these pieces and just the just the, the skill. So that was enjoyable. And there was a lot of accordion playing with tango. Um, and why, why does that not sound crazy? Well, my grandfather, he's German. And so, well, he was, he passed away in 2016, rest in peace, Gramps. But he used to play the accordion. So when I was a kid, he would play the accordion and I would accompany him with my violin. <laughs> it was very cool. I used to do that with my grandfather. Uh, so there's a lot of accordion that goes along with tango music. And the accordion players were from Argentina because, you know, tango is an Argentinian thing. And they were phenomenal. So I'd never really seen a performance where the accordion is playing along with a symphony like that. It was it was it was just great. So that's just me nerding out. But for those maybe someone who's listening who's into tango and appreciates this. So that's uh, a little bit about what my mom and I did for Mother's Day. Well, let's get into some of the other crazy, because there's always something going on in the Chaos Chronicles. The President of the United States decided to tweet up a storm over the weekend again. He's been, at one point, I think he tweeted 60 tweets in 45 minutes, tweeting his own, retweeting other crazies, and a lot of it had to do with two main issues, the Mueller report and Don McGahn former White House counsel, whose testimony in front of the special counsel was pretty damning for the president. It was the basis for several of the potential obstruction of justice um, incidents laid out in the Mueller report. There's a big thing about not permitting Don McGahn to testify because Trump doesn't want that because it could be pretty, you know, it's different than when you hear it, when you read it in a report than hearing it from the person who was there. So the White House, the reports were that the White House tried to get Don McGahn to come out publicly to say that at no point did he think that the president was obstructing justice. Well, Don McGahn said, kick rocks, basically. He said, no, I'm not doing that. Probably because, as um, outlined in the Mueller report, Don McGahn was packing up his office ready to resign because of what Trump was asking him to do concerning Mueller which was firing Mueller. Right. There was really no reason. There was no cause. There was no conflict. This was all because Trump said, quote, I'm fucked when Mueller was appointed because he knew that now he was going to be investigated and God only knew what was under all those layers. So McGahn, he, the White House counsel, you have to understand, is not the president's personal lawyer. He is the lawyer for the office of the presidency. So Don McGahn's priority is protecting the office of the presidency, which is why he probably felt the need to try to you know, resign because he wasn't going to go along with things that the president was asking him to do. He called it, quote, crazy shit, which is in the Mueller report, by the way, that's verbatim. He wasn't going along with it. But then he was talked out of it by Reince Priebus, who was the chief of staff at the time. And he stayed around for another year, almost a year and a half. But probably a good, that was a good thing because Don McGahn was an adult in the room. But Trump does not want him to testify in front of Congress. He's worried, just like he doesn't want Mueller to testify either. 
Republicans are running around with Mitch McConnell leading the way shamelessly, claiming that the case is closed. There's nothing else to see here. Really? That's bullshit. There's plenty to see here. Not only from the counterintelligence part of this with Russia and what they did during the election, the fact this administration is still in denial, well, Trump is at least, still in denial about that. And they're really not doing anything to stop it from happening again. To the fact that the president is acting, acting lawlessly. Really. And they're just, they're ignoring subpoenas. They're doing, claiming executive privilege where it doesn't apply. They're trying to do all kinds of stuff. And Greg Sargent, who's coming up in a, in a few minutes, he, in one of his columns, basically asks, if you've been totally exonerated, there's no collusion, no corruption, I mean, no collusion, no um, obstruction, you've been totally exonerated, why all the obfuscation? Why? Doesn't make sense. Wouldn't you want the people who allegedly exonerated you to be out there saying, yes, he's completely clear. Well, maybe it's because he's not totally exonerated. Maybe it's because there is actual collusion, but it just didn't rise to a criminal level. It's still not okay. That's why the Senate Intelligence Committee, kudos to Senator uh, Richard Burr from, from North Carolina. Thank God that he decided to grow a pair of balls and subpoena Trump Jr., Well, why? Well, because Richard Burr of North Carolina is no longer running for re-election. They all grow a pair once they don't have to face voters again, apparently. That's the pattern. So much to the chagrin of Trump and his minions, um, Burr has decided, look, we're going to subpoena Donald Trump Jr. because there's been some things revealed in the Mueller report that are inconsistent with his testimony in front of our committee. So we're going to do our due diligence and call him back and find out, get some clarification here. Now, the Trump administration has basically said, we're not going to, uh, we're not going to abide by any of these subpoenas, just ignore them. That's a problem because constitutionally, the Congress has a right to subpoena and if we don't enforce them, what good are they? And don't think this is not gonna happen again. It will with a different administration. So I don't understand why Republicans, well, I do understand why they're doing it for short-term political expediency, but this is going to turn around and bite them in the ass when there's a Democrat one day. This is a horrible precedent. But Richard Burr, he's basically like, well, I don't give a shit right now, and I'm going to do what I think is right. So at least the Senate Intelligence Committee has maintained a certain amount of bipartisanship, unlike the Senate Judiciary Committee, chaired by Lindsey Graham. What a mockery that's turned into. So we'll see. I mean, obviously Trump um, not happy about this subpoena, but Donald Trump Jr. could just ignore it. And then what? That's the big question. Then what? There are some remedies. Will the Democrats use them? I'm not sure. Are they going to send the sergeant at arms to go and arrest Don Trump Jr.? Probably not. They could find him, but he's someone with means. So I don't know how much a fine's going to make a difference. I don't know, but it's ugly. And we're on a collision course, a constitutional collision course here. We are. I don't think we're at the crisis yet. I think it's a little overblown when Nadler and others say that, oh, we're in a constitutional crisis. Not quite. Because so far the 
so far the, the, the subpoenas that have been ignored are over documents. Um, there's still some room for negotiation, but we're headed down that, that path. We really are. And how it's handled will have repercussions moving forward. It just will. It's funny, the fact that the, the White House is still trying to get Don McGahn to come out and say that he never thought the president obstructed justice. Just a story just came out a couple days ago in the New York Times. And McGahn's like, no. So I hope he testifies. I really, really do. He needs to. He needs to. So does Mueller. Absolutely. 100%. Because believe me, despite the PR efforts of Mitch McConnell and the rest of the Trump minions, the case is not closed, folks. It's not. There are a lot of things that need to be answered for. And a lot of things the American public needs to hear and be made well aware of what's going on with this damn Trump administration. It's a fucking disaster. Speaking of, Rudy Giuliani. I was on... Um, Don Lemon a couple days ago, a couple nights ago, talking about this. Oh, no, wait, was it Don Lemon show I was talking about this? No, it was um, over the weekend, CNN over the weekend. Uh, Rudy Giuliani was actually going to go over to the Ukraine and try to dig up dirt on Joe Biden and his son, Hunter Biden, who sat on the board of this Ukrainian gas company. What? This is insane, which is what I said on CNN. Since when is it okay for anyone, any personal, anybody's personal attorney of a, of a presidential candidate or the president of the United States to go to another country to try to dig up dirt on a political opponent, employing the, the services of another government to do that? That is not okay. And the right wing is trying to put out this whole conspiracy theory about the fact that Joe Biden intervened in Ukraine to get rid of this prosecutor that was over there because they were looking into the company that his son was sitting on the board of. That's not completely true. Yes, Joe Biden did go back when he was vice president and pressured Ukrainian officials to get rid of this prosecutor. But this was something that other leaders in the world were on board with because this prosecutor was not investigating corruption in Ukraine, which there's a lot of. So it had nothing to do with Hunter Biden being on the board of a, of a company there. As a matter of fact, that company, the investigation into that company had been dormant for two years by that point. So the fact they would get a new prosecutor probably actually increased the chances of that company possibly being um, investigated again because now there's new folks in there. So if there was legitimate corruption going on, a new prosecutor would look into it, right? But these conspiracy theorists on the right, they spin these things into these big deals when they're not. And then we have this whole thing now where they're trying to take Biden out at the knees with something, with a, with a made-up story. Well, guess what? Giuliani had to reverse his plans because it got out there that he was going to go do this. And Ukraine, they just got their own new government. They're in transition now. They don't want Giuliani over there meddling and stuff. They were like, you know what, buddy? Thanks, but no thanks. Nobody's going to meet with you. Keep your ass in the U.S., basically. <laughs> so that plan blew up in Giuliani's face. Just the audacity to think that that's okay. So it's unbelievable to me. These people are out of control. Democrats would never get away with this. Republicans would be screaming bloody murder, as they should. But now, 
apparently anything goes. Not okay. Not okay. Something else that's not okay is this trade war going on with China. Now, I... So this, this stuff going on with China, you know, I'm not an economist, but I do understand some of the politics and some of the economic ramifications of what's going on. And Trump and his people are trying to bullshit the American people into believing that tariffs are good. They are not. He's trying to bullshit the American people into believing that a trade war is easy. It's good. It's, it can be won easily. No, it cannot. This is coming from the same person who, according to a brilliant expose by the New York Times last week, lost a billion dollars in 10 years, over a billion dollars. From 1984, I think it was, to 1994, that decade, Donald Trump lost more money as an individual than any other person in the country. He is a terrible businessman terrible. But he sold the American people a bill of goods. He sold them on a facade because of The Apprentice. Okay, the power of television and creating images. He's a great marketer, terrible actual businessman. Almost every actual business he's run has failed. From the casinos to the airline to the vodkas to the steaks to different real estate deals the Plaza Hotel, I mean, he bank, He almost went personally bankrupt, but he's, his companies were bankrupt four times. And the only thing that saved his ass from personal bankruptcy was his family. And during this same 10-year period, his father, Fred Trump, who is actually a, a bastard, but a good businessman, made money. So I don't want to hear any bullshit that it was about, oh, the economy was bad or this and that. No, it's because Donald Trump is a fucking terrible businessman. Terrible. He mismanages everything. There's a story about when he went to Atlantic City. And if you're from New Jersey or that area, you know that basically Atlantic City was run by the mafia. And you had to have connections with the mob in order to buy certain property, get certain licenses. I mean, that's just the way it was. The mafia... Even though Donald Trump was fascinated with the mafia and he would try to pal around with them in the 80s, Roy Cohn, his mentor, was a mafia, big mafia lawyer. So he would, off the strength of Roy Cohn's reputation, Donald Trump would hang around these these mob guys. They thought that he was a chump. They thought that he was a, a, like, get the fuck out of here with this guy, a wannabe chump. And they would not do business with him in Atlantic City unless his father, Fred Trump, would go in on those deals. Unless Fred signed off on it, they would not do direct business with Donald because they knew that he was a, a shkeev. They knew that he was incompetent. So, you know, this whole thing, I just can't believe so many people bought into this. But anyway, the, the New York Times report is fascinating. If you haven't read it, go back and read it. It just goes, it just shows you that the length and the amount of failure and the hashtag billion dollar loser was was trending for a while yes i engaged in it because i just wanted to irritate donald trump billion dollar loser total trump fraud it's exactly what he is um 
And now he's taking his God awful business quote business sense and throwing the global markets into a tizzy. He for years, decades now has had a bug up his ass about trade tariffs, Japan, China. He's into this protectionism crap, which is really bad if you're a free market person and, and not good for American businesses or consumers protectionism doesn't work. And our economies are way too intertwined now, China and the US, that we can't just willy nilly go tit for tat in a tariff retaliation um, exercise here. We just can't. And George Will um, has a really good uh, column out in the Washington Post where he talks about how well our economy has actually been doing. Manufacturing in certain sectors and all kinds of things are actually up. And but this whole thing over Trump and, and, and China, this is this is no no bueno. Now, he Trump had put 10 percent tariff on some goods. Right. We heard about this and a lot of reports in the economic um uh, you know, papers and websites are like, look, 10%, not, you know, of course, businesses don't like it, but it, it was manageable. It was manageable. They, they pass the, the, of course, they pass the costs on to the consumer, but it can be absorbed or things, certain things can be renegotiated when you're talking only 10%. But when you start talking 25%, which is what has kicked in now over the weekend, now we've got a problem, major problem. Forbes magazine um, Forbes.com, Kenneth Raposa has an article called Trump's base in panic over 25% tariffs on China goods. Well, they should be because that's who it affects. It affects the middle class and it affects the middle class in ways from business, small businesses to consumers where people will feel this in their pockets. Now, what exactly are tariffs? Trump is running around trying to tell people that tariffs are good and that China is going to pay for them. That's bullshit. It's a lie. And Greg and I, Greg Sargent and I, who's coming up, we talk about this. Chris Wallace from Fox News, one of the only ones with that's sane over there, him and Shep. Chris Wallace challenged Trump's chief economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, who used to be a Reagan guy. He used to be on CNBC. Larry Kudlow was never a protectionist, ever. He's a free market capitalist, good Republican. At least he used to be. Now he's going along with this protectionist bullshit. And you could just see him squirm in his chair when Chris Wallace challenged him on the truth about who pays the price for tariffs. It ain't China. And Larry Kudlow damn well knows this. But he sat there and tried to say, well, both sides will pay. And Chris Wallace challenged him. He's like, no, it's not both sides. Well, what what else is he going to say? He wants to keep his job with Trump. So... He's going to bullshit and say, oh, well, both sides do kind of. But he still had to admit that China doesn't necessarily pay those tariffs, that they that those costs are paid by the Americans, by American businesses and consumers. Well, so what's a tariff exactly? Well, tariffs are just really their port taxes. They're due at the time of delivery and they're paid to the U.S. government. So. When you import something from another country, there's a a tax basically placed on that product. So, for example, if I'm an auto 
brakes company, our auto supply company, and I import those products from China because I use them in other things that we build cars or you build whatever. You have to pay a 25% tax on that product in order to import it into the U.S. So how the hell is that hurting China? Well, it can hurt China if people decide, well, we're not going to buy those products from those people anymore in China. We're going to go somewhere else to buy them, or we're going to have to buy them from U.S. suppliers. But here's the problem with that. In theory, you think, oh, well, that, that sounds great. Except for the fact that the supply chain for a lot of things in this country are tied directly to products that only China makes. Or they dominate that, that market so much that it's, not, it, it's cost prohibitive to try to buy them from somewhere else, to import them from somewhere else. Now, for some industries, it could give a short-term boost. But what happens is that for any jobs created or for any short-term boost it gives to one sector, it really, really hurts another. And that's a problem. It has a reverberating effect that people just don't realize. Now, if you've been paying attention to the stock market, you'll see that this week, the opening bell, stocks and commodities tumbled on Monday because the world is looking around going, holy shit, this is really not good. They tumbled. A trillion dollars was wiped out of global stock market value. A trillion dollars. Our commodities, our agriculture crops like soybeans and cotton tanked. Their prices are slumping to the lowest levels in decades. This really hurts people who are Trump's base. So they have every right to be panicked. The ones that are are paying attention, like the farmers in Iowa, in Indiana. In this Forbes story, they talked to a farmer in Indiana uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote from it. Okay, so this guy's name is Brent Bible. He's a farmer in Indiana. He said, quote, we are operating at a loss now. Since Trump announced the increase in tariffs over the weekend, we've seen a price reduction in our crops coming up for the sale this summer that equates to around a $50,000 loss for us. That's a lot for these guys. You know, these are family-owned farms. This isn't like Monsanto, okay? These are family-owned, good, you know, red-blooded Americans, He said, China has tariffs on U.S. soybeans, but China being China, they don't really pay for it. Now, this was interesting because I didn't realize this. China circumvents these kinds of tariffs because they do, you know, we, we place a tariff on their, a couple of their products, then they retaliate on some of our products. And the Chinese are savvy enough. They know about American politics and they're aware of what industries hurt what political agendas. So when we've slapped tariffs on steel and aluminum, they turned around and slapped tariffs on our soybeans because they're like, oh, okay, y'all want to do that? We're going to go for your farmers, which is a Trump base. Those are Trump based supporters in states that Trump has got to win if he thinks he's going to win re-election. So the Chinese aren't dumb. Now, this is something I didn't realize. It said, he says, our soybeans are still going to be there. They're still going to go to China. They are purchased through the government so they can avoid the tariffs. So there you have it. That's just one example, just one crop, one item where the Chinese, they can circumvent whatever we're doing because they just purchase them through. Well, you have to remember, China's not an open 
democratic free market society. Almost, there's really no private business. The government has its hands in most major businesses and companies there. So they can circumvent it. Meanwhile, our farmers are being subsidized. They're being paid off. Trump has been paying, I think at the, originally it was $12 billion. Now they're going to need more because they've increased the tariffs to 25% on things. So, of course, China immediately retaliated, and it's affected all kinds of, of sectors, from Boeing to Apple to John Deere to soybeans and cotton. You know, this is, this is not a good look. And the Trump administration... They've been subsidizing these farmers who are losing all of this money because of this stupid trade war. They've been paying them off. They've been giving them subsidies. Well, that's not how a free market works either. That's not good. And no matter what they subsidize it with, it's not the same as earning their profits through the market. Now, China's not completely innocent in this. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of problems with the way China does economic business, the way they manipulate their currency, the way the fluctuations in values with things and they steal intellectual property they are bad actors on the world stage they are and that something needs to be done but the way that trump is doing this is not the way to do it it's not and who knows no i mean tariffs just simply hurt the companies that serve the middle class the most a 25 percent tariff cannot be just absorbed that really has significant implications so, you know, we've got to, you know, what is, what is China going to do? There's a couple scenarios. There's a couple scenarios. Do they, is there a bad deal that Trump just gets in just to get a deal? I don't know. Or does China wait it out? And they say, well, the hell with this. We're just going to, we can, we can take it. We'll just wait it out until there's a new administration. Possibly. I don't know. But. Short of a a real deal, which I just don't know that Trump actually wants, because he needs a foil. I don't know how this ends. I don't know. Maybe this is something that finally wakes people up, because it actually hurts the economy. I don't know. But the supply chain disruption is real. Is another example in the Forbes article. They talk about some of the things, some of the items that... You, you just can't get outside of China. It says here, um, the China trade war is more complex than simply protecting manufacturing jobs or reducing the trade gap between the two countries. It's a long game. And one of the goals of the game is to force U.S. companies to look outside of China for manufacturing. However, some items are only made in China. Others, like toys and consumer electronics, are dominated by China. The KitchenAid blender is made in China. Nearly everything Mattel sells is made in China. The fancy store bags and boxes shoppers at J. Crew use are only made in China. Those are just examples. Small examples. So we are, whether we like it or not, we're hitched to China's economy and they are ours. So something's got to give at some point. I just don't know what that is. But depending on Donald Trump's Donald Trump's uh, negotiating skills, uh, that doesn't give me any (laughs) solace. And with that, I just want to read something from my friend Charlie Sykes. I love Charlie. He's over at the Bulwark. Uh, He's a never good, never Trump Republican. And he also sits on the board with me of Stand Up Republic. But Charlie, (laughs) he's a great writer. You should check him out. He's got a podcast too. I got to get him on mine. Charlie's a lot of fun. 
but he wrote a story today in the bulwark basically saying everything sucks. <laughs> and, um, but one part of it is part of the, uh, it, referencing the, the New York times story I was talking about before that exposed Donald Trump for being the horrible businessman that he actually is and about how he's perpetrated a fraud. So I just, I just want to read a little bit from it and then I'm going to bring in Greg because I just think it's a great transition. Charlie writes, but really all the scams of our time pale before Trump himself. Trump does not define the age as much as he arises from it. As we learned last week, by the time his master of the universe memoir, Trump, the art of the deal, this is from the New York Times part. By the time the memoir, Trump, uh, Trump's Art of the Deal, hit bookstores in 1987, Donald Trump was already in deep financial distress, losing tens of millions of dollars on troubled business deals, according to previously unrevealed figures from his federal income tax returns. I'm still wondering how they got those tax returns, but anyway. Mr. Trump was propelled to the presidency in part by a self-spun narrative of business success and of setbacks triumphantly overcome. He has attributed his first run of reversals and bankruptcies to the recession that took hold in 1990. But Trump of tax, but, but 10 years of tax information obtained by the New York Times paints a different picture and far bleaker, a far bleaker picture of his deal-making abilities and financial condition. Charlie goes on to write, as it turns out, Trump's losses of $1.17 billion over the decade meant that year after year, Mr. Trump appears to have lost more money than nearly any other individual in American, uh, any other individual American taxpayer. That says a lot, by the way. Charlie goes on to write, and yet Trump managed to parlay that monumental fail into an elaborate myth of himself as master of the universe an image that ultimately propelled him to the presidency. So now we are all living through the fire festival of presidencies. How does that not define our times? He calls it the grifted, the grifted age, a play on the gilded age. Yeah. I just think that that was funny because it's true. We are living through the fire festival of presidencies. And for those who don't know, the fire festival was this colossal failure it was a colossal Ponzi scheme that was supposed to be this like Coachella, but in but really high end in the Bahamas. And people, these very well healed uh, millennials paid all kinds of money, tens of thousands of dollars to go to this, this festival that was supposed to happen in the Bahamas. It turned out to be a disaster. They, they couldn't live up to what they sold because they thought you could hang out with the glitterati and models and go on yachts and all this extravagant stuff. There's a documentary on Netflix. You got to watch it if you don't get the reference. But the Fire Festival of Presidencies. Well done, my friend Charlie Sykes. Well done. Without further ado, I'd like to bring in this week's guest uh, for Honestly Speaking, Greg Sargent of the Washington Post.
this week's guest on Honestly Speaking with Tara is uh, Greg Sargent, who is a columnist for the Washington Post. You've probably read his his blog called The Plum Line with Greg Sargent, and I've uh, come to appreciate it, even though we are on opposite sides of the political spectrum. But what we are not on the opposite sides of is what's right and wrong. And Greg has been doing a great job covering what's going on with the Trump administration, and I've come to appreciate his column. So, Greg, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. Thank you so much. Um, make sure I want to make sure that I mention that not only is Greg an excellent columnist for The Post, but he's also the author of a book out called Uncivil War, Democracy in an Age of Trumpian Disinformation and Thunderdome Politics. I, that's an awesome title. Were you a fan of, of Mad Max? <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, you know, the Thunderdome seemed very appropriate on two levels, actually. You know, one is that that uh, the Thunderdome was meant to capture the kind of what happens when all rules and norms and, and uh, fair play go out the window in our politics, which is happening now. No kidding. And then second, yeah, right? And secondarily, uh, Thunderdome politics was meant to capture the kind of blood sport, crude entertainment uh, tenor that Trump has brought to it. So that was the idea behind the Thunderdome. Uh, how long did it take you to write the book? And and was it something that you said, I just have to do this? Was there a moment when you said, I have to freaking write a book after X, Y, or Z? Well, you know, I wish I could say that it happened that way, but that's not really what happened. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I was talking with, 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 a, with a publisher about doing something on, on, on you know, Republican anti-democratic tactics and and uh, and and so I I, I I took that on but then as I kind of researched it it became a little bit more complicated than I ever expected and and you know it's not an easy topic at all um, it's really way more uh, nuanced than with many more layers than I ever uh, thought possible um, and the result was the book what do you consider Trumpian disinformation? I mean, I can guess, but what? How do you define that in in uh, from your perspective? Well, so I think one thing that still isn't fully appreciated, including by some members of our media, is that is that Trump isn't just engaged in an uncommonly uh, high level of kind of garden variety political lying. He's really drawing on kind of almost quasi-totalitarian tactics in the sense that what he's really doing is is, is better termed disinformation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and by that, I, you know, what I intended there was to, to, to essentially say that what he's really trying to do is, is obliterate uh, the possibility of, of shared faith in, in fact. And you know, I think you see this everywhere with him. Um, it's it's the sheer repetition of the lying, which I think is really a, an important aspect of it that continues to be underappreciated. The repetition over and over, including in the face of easily verifiable contrary facts, which I consider to be also really central to what he's doing, because as I write in the book, he, his his lying and, and use of disinformation is really almost like an assertion of power. He's mm-hmm. he's asserting the power to say what reality is, even when, or, or especially when, uh, contrary facts that are readily available dictate the obvious. Uh, and so, you know, disinfor- Trumpian disinformation, it's, it's kind of a, its own thing. There's a guy who comes out of reality TV, uh, the New York tabloid world. He worked the tabloids for many years. 
um, and invented his own reality for an extremely long time. And, and, and so it kind of collided with, with our politics in a way that I think, you know, we still don't quite understand. Well, I think that's an excellent point to bring up that his penchant for lying and why he does it is an assertion of power. I haven't heard anyone uh, um, frame it that way before, but I think that's really an astute observation because what we say, what knowledge is power, right? And we hear we've given someone... Exactly. Here we have given someone who's had a problem with telling the truth, who has inflated information and exaggerated. And he talks about in the art of the deal, truthful hyperbole as one of his yeah, tactics. Right. right. That was 30 freaking yep. years ago. And now we've elevated someone like this uh, into the highest office in the land with an unbelievable amount of power and reach from the bully pulpit. And look at the way he's use- using it. It's very dangerous. And I agree with you that it is totalitarian in nature and it's that the level of propaganda and disinformation and to undermine what's truth and what's fact is really something that has alarmed me that so many people in this country have fallen victim to it. And I'm not quite sure how yeah. we combat it. And that's the long, the long-term consequences of this concern me greatly. Yeah, I'm, I'm very worried about it too. I, I mean, I, I, in some ways I'm heartened. I have to say, I, as I try to write in the book, there, there are, lots of ways in which I think all of us are still um, a little bit helpless in the face of this, this, uh, this level of disinformation, but, uh, and there are all kinds of ways we can improve, which is something I I talk about, Mm -hmm. but you have to, I think you have to be heartened to some degree. I mean, a lot of his lies and are are really not working. Right. And, and I, and unfortunately you often hear, Oh, Trump's lies work. Oh, he's, he's getting away with this. He's getting away with that. I don't know that he is. I mean, Look at the Mueller report, right? I mean, this guy mm-hmm. waged two two years of disinformation about that report, right? And there was constant hand-wringing, I think, you know, among the never-Trumpers, uh, conservatives, and also among liberals to the effect of, well, this is going to work. It's going to, you know, it's going to cancel out the Mueller findings for many for many voters. And I think that's probably true that, that he was able to essentially create a, 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 an alternate reality in the minds of many millions of Republican voters. But I think you have to be hardened by the polls, which essentially show that, that the public never bought, you know, the broader public, majority opinion, mainstream opinion, independents, um, moderates. They never really accepted that the Mueller probe was corrupt. They, they, uh, they don't think that he's been exonerated by it. Uh, I, I really think that's a that's a that's a that's a heartening development. Well, I always like to see an upside in things. You know, it's doom and gloom all the time. <laughs> and there yeah. is a silver lining somewhere, people. It's not all horrible all the time. And I and I think that th- those of us in the media who are prone to so much of the information, we're just it's just a deluge of crazy shit as Don McGahn would say um, all the time with Trump <laughs> that we sometimes can be a little cynical, but it's also good to know for people to know, like, look, it's not all doom and gloom. There is some hope here because we are, you know, for us over at CNN, facts first. You guys are doing a great job at the Washington Post, despite the attacks from the right with the fact finding um, and with the fact checking and all of those things. You guys are doing yeoman's work there. And I think people are Thank starting. You. The, you're welcome. Um 
those people who are not in the echo chamber, you know, which is only about 30%, 35% of the country, everybody else, I think he's beginning to start to, to see that, look, this is insane what's happening. And it's clear. I mean, so many of what Trump's lies uh, encompass are like easily disprovable, right? It's just easily right. disprovable. And um, your last two columns, um, I encourage everyone to go check them out at the plumb line, um, really focus in on that. And I was going to transition over to the, the, the China tariff lies, since that's kind of what's been big news this week. But since we, you brought up Mueller, we'll start with that one. On Friday, okay. you talked about the uh, your, your, your column was the big unanswered question at the core of Trump's corruption, which talks about why in God's name is Trump freaking out over the Mueller report and tweeting like a crazy person and trying to do everything they can, Republicans being the enablers, doing everything they can in this big coordinated PR effort to say that the case is closed and that we don't want to hear anything else about the about the Mueller report. Why are they acting like this if he was totally exonerated? Talk a little bit about what you what you wrote in your column. Well, sure. I mean, you know, sometimes we end up chasing this or that individual lie down the rabbit hole kind of so so often and so relentlessly and that we, we kind of sometimes lose sight of, of the bigger lies that are happening here. I mean, you know, what the, the, the Republican apparatus, Trump, Trump's uh, whole disinformation network, Mitch McConnell, Senate Republicans, uh, much of the right wing media, Trump's propagandists in the media. They've been blaring the same message, right, for, you know, weeks, which is total exoneration. This is a closed matter. No collusion, no obstruction. We've heard that over and over and over. Republicans are saying it in every conceivable form that they can. Mm -hmm. Why would this be necessary? If if that were the case, then why would there be this insane and, you know, incredibly concerted effort to close down any and all inquiry um, into every single remaining unknown that still is out there if, if he had been totally exonerated. It, it just, it, it's laughable on its face. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost like it, that, that's in a way a simple point, right? It's almost too simple to, <laughs> right. for, for it to even <laughs> remark on, but it's, but we lose sight of these kind of simple, uh, you know, um, I don't know. I don't know how to put it, but but it seems like that's a really important thing to keep in mind whenever they say total exoneration. I mean, it's not like it's even remotely uh, inappropriate for Congress to be doing its own independent inquiry into all these remaining um, elements. They would be derelict if they didn't do that. And and Republicans know this. Of course they do. And, you know, I'm I'm embarrassed of my party's behavior with all of this because I'm old enough to remember the the Republicans posture during the Clinton impeachment. I was, you know, I went to George Washington University. So during the 90s, I that's where my political maturation happened. It was from, you know, I came to DC in 93. I graduated in 98. And that was right at the beginning of the of the Clinton impeachment hearings. And I can remember people like Mitch McConnell and and um, Lindsey Graham and their floor, their floor speeches going on and on about the importance of congressional oversight and the importance of, of, of making sure a president doesn't abuse power. And that was back over a simple lie of about an affair. Now, I agreed that that was a problem, but that is peanuts compared to what we're 
what we're facing with Trump. And these Republicans are out here taking a complete hypocritical position on this. Um, I have to say Mitch McConnell's floor speech last week made me nauseous because I, I just couldn't believe how he was trying to justify this when he know the problem is they know better. They know damn well, but they're, I, they, right. they want to hold on to power. Um, and it's very short term. Mitch McConnell's up for reelection. So is Lindsey Graham. You know, they they're trying to maintain power. They think they'll outlast Trump. But the long term damage, not just to the party, but to the to the country and our constitutional order, I think, should be more important. Yet, yeah, I know. think the Mitch McConnell thing is important. Yeah, for sure. And I'd like to add something here, sure. you know, which George Conway, uh, Kellyanne Conway's husband. Oh, yeah. My buddy George Conway. Uh, yeah, well, he's 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 doing a, a lot of important stuff by articulating this point of view. But he and I have, you know, went back and forth and talked about this on Twitter a couple of times. But this is still something that I think is underappreciated. Um, well, so, can I just ask you quickly? Was that recently yeah. that you were that you uh, talked to George? Uh, yeah, I think it was maybe a week and a half ago, two okay. weeks ago. That's fairly recently. But, <laughs> yeah, but he um, he did it. He uh, he did it. Um, I think just over the weekend and got something like eleven thousand retweets or more, mm-hmm. as as Including he always does. Including from me. Ah, yes. <laughs> so you saw the thread, right? So the key the key thing here is right. So when we talk about the the extensive obstruction of justice with the Mueller report documents. Um, we still tend to talk about it as an effort by Trump to close down an investigation into his own and his own campaign's conduct. And so the excuse from Republicans and Trump uh, propagandists becomes something along the lines of, well, you know, he, he thought it was an unfair investigation. And so uh, he, he was just trying to close that down. You, you, hear, you heard that from, I think, William Barr himself, right? right. At the press conference just yep. before the release of Mueller. But here's the thing, right? So by obstructing the uh, investigation, he was not just obstructing an investigation into his own and his own campaign conflict. He was obstructing an investigation designed to get to the bottom of a foreign attack on our political system. Exactly. Irrespective, right? Irrespective and putting aside whether there was any collusion. And so for anyone to say case closed about that is is doubly reprehensible because essentially what they're saying is – it's not a big deal that Trump didn't want a full reckoning of an attack on, on, on our politics. And, and I don't understand how Republicans can adopt that position at this point, Right. given to, that the be... Mueller report itself shows yes. how extensive the attack was. It's like their position is the Mueller report totally exonerated Trump and also ignore the first 40 pages of the Mueller report. Right, which is volume one, which talks all about the right. Russian interference and the le- the extent of it, which was pretty significant. I just co-hosted yeah. the view, guest co-hosted the view um, on Friday, where we talked about the Don Jr. subpoena and why that's significant. And I was explaining to people every opportunity I have to talk about the Mueller report and what's happening. I tell people, read the damn report. Even if you don't want to read the whole yeah. thing, read the summaries. Please. <laughs> this is, yeah. you know, people need to know the truth about what's happening. It's right there in Mueller's own words. And the summaries laid out pretty clearly what Russia did. And it's not okay that our president and his people in his orbit were willing participants in this to accept that kind of information. And they're they're probably going to do it again. Like, please. People, yeah. And, and we should them. add, by the way, yeah, for sure. And, and I think it's important to note also that we know from the reporting that members of Trump's own administration 
tried to wanted to warn him and, and, and focus the country's response or the government's response on the next round of Russian attacks right. on our political system. Right. Kirsten, uh, Kirsten Nielsen. Uh, as the Times reported, wanted to do that. And Mick Mulvaney essentially went to her and said, you know, don't bring this up with Trump. It's not a good topic. And so it's not only does Trump not want a full reckoning of the Russian attack on our on our political system, uh, he also is refusing to marshal a response to the next round of it, even though his own intelligence officials are saying that it's coming or even it's actually happening. In right. fact, I think um, – just dereliction he just of his duty. Chris Ray, right? I would think that's yeah, dereliction I, I, of his duty right. and his oath to to protect the United States. Um, you know, it's, that's right. Yeah. It's, it's, it was, okay. it, it's unbelievable. Sometimes I just can't believe these are the conversations that we're having about the president of the United States yeah. with a major major party figures who know better enabling it. It's it's unbelievable. Um, well, and recall Mitch McConnell in 2016, he was asked by senior intelligence officials, and this is not political people. These were right. the top intelligence officials, you know, met with uh, the gang of, I can't remember the number. but Gang of eight. Uh, gang of eight, yeah. right. And Mitch McConnell was one of them. And he was asked to show a united front against uh, the Russian attack on, on our political system. And he refused. And incredibly, he said that he would treat publicly treat any condemnation of that attack as partisan politics, as an attack on Republicans. Which is something that gets lost in this a lot of times when when Republicans and Trump people try to blame the Obama administration, which does have some, I think there, in hindsight, there are even officials who've come out sure. who've said, me and a lot, maybe we could have been a little tougher. Um, but Absolutely, they yeah. turn that around and they forget that, well, yeah, Mitch McConnell was also part of the decision not to be tougher at the time, but, you know, they conveniently leave that out. Uh, I just right. have to, I have to ask you quickly when when you were communicating with George because I actually know George um, and Kellyanne. We you know I'd been friends with Kellyanne yeah. for many years through our you know Republican circles and um, I've been around George and I, I I adore him and I've 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 been just very dismayed by the very public kind of. Um, chasm between the two and the fact that she's chosen basically Donald Trump and the propaganda machine over her own marriage in a way. It's just, it's fascinating to watch. But um, what do you, what impression did you get from George as far as kind of where he's at now with his decision to be so openly vocal about his concerns and about um, challenging the, the Trump uh, Leviathan of lies. Um, did you did did you get a sense from him of kind of where he's at with that? You know, I guess I not really. I mean, I think he he seems to me to be in a very similar place to where you are, right? Um, <laughs> you know, he 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 um he, he's. It seems to me that what's really driving a lot of this is is just the utter dismay at seeing the, what's happening to the Republican Party. I mean, you know, like you and I are not on the same side on a bunch of stuff, but. I would like there to be a much more functional conservative opposition. Uh, and I think, you know, you would like the Republican Party to be more functional. And, and we can't. Yeah. I mean, I'm actually one of these liberals who, who thinks that we can make deals on a bunch of stuff. Yes, um, right. In fact, right in, in the book, I write there are actually deals to be made on on how to improve democracy that in which uh, liberals would make some concessions to conservatives on things like voter ID um, mm-hmm. and so forth. So, I mean, we would all like a much more functional conservative opposition and not one that is 
comfortable with white nationalism and authoritarianism. And, and you know, these are, the, the story of what's happened to the Republican Party is, is, is a long one. And, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, you, you probably have a much better inside sense of it than I do. But it seems to me that there is a really quite legitimate movement among some conservatives, at least, uh, who are rightly and understandably dismayed by what's happening in their own party. And, and, and you know, there, well, there are a lot is. of people on the left that are, right? I mean, there are yes. a lot of people on the left who are very suspicious of that, right? Um, who say who will say something along the lines of, oh, well, you know, these are just neocons who don't like who 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 don't like Trump because he isn't validating the conservative the neoconservative foreign policy establishment's vision? You know, I, I guess there might be now. something to that. It's yeah, bigger than that I, I now. <laughs> Believe like, me, yeah, it's, I mean, I, yeah, we we have like you know I always say this to people. I'm like. I miss the days when we would just argue over policy solutions, you know, not over like the fundamentals of our constitutional order. Um, that's why I sit on the board of Evan McMullen's group, Stand Up Republic, um, why I'm allied with people like, you know, Bill Crystal and others who are out there just just trying to put those pieces back together. It's almost like to hell with the policy differences at this point. We're just trying to keep the democracy in, <laughs> intact, you know, and I think that's where right. we initially find common ground at this point let's we can argue over medicare for all and all that you know later <laughs> let's just get let's just right the ship in you know yeah i mean i i i totally agree it's it seems to me that you know a lot of people on my side don't want to don't don't agree with me on this but it seems to me that that a lot of the never trump conservatives are motivated by what genuine and and, and sincere dismay by what's happened of, of about what's happening to the party and, and what it's doing to our politics. I mean, we'll go back to fighting over other stuff right. later. But, Ex- exactly, you know. which kind of leads me into, um, and, and we have a few minutes left, um, into your your latest column, which is about um, what's happening with this, this trade war with China and how this speaks to another aspect of kind of the the veneer of toughness that Trump tries to put out there that we all know is BS. Um, uh, you know, the emperor really has no clothes. The New York Times expose about him losing a billion dollars in a decade and being a horrible businessman wasn't news to me. I grew up in Jersey. I know what he did to Atlantic City. Um, I, you know, I, I, I read the tabloids. I mean, I tried to warn people in 2016 that this guy was a fraud, but they didn't want to listen. They were caught up in the celebrity apprentice kind Kind of um, you know facade that he's created, but you talk about um, the, the your latest column out Monday said Trump is staking re-election on one of his biggest lies, and it's about what's happening with China tariffs. Talk about that a little bit. Well, so in recent days he's he's said over and over again that China is paying us billions in tariffs, right? And and so he's kind of changed the way he's saying that to make it a tiny bit less um, ostentatiously false. Right. <laughs> but that's been the argument, right? It's been that, you know, he's, he's kind of back. He's, he, he's essentially laying the groundwork for the possibility that there will either be no deal or a very bad deal, in which case people will rightly point out that it wasn't worth all the pain that, that his tariffs inflicted on, in particular, farmers who export to China, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, my view is that the, that the argument that uh, the claim that China is paying us in tariffs 
is a way to recast this kind of this whole debate as tariffs are good for us. Um, and I think even even more sinisterly, um, what he's essentially saying to his voters is, China's been ripping us off for for many years. You elected me to write that to turn that around. Well, now I'm shaking them down and and, and giving us back the money, meaning giving you, my voters, back the money. And it's literally what he's saying, right, in a way, right. because he's talking about using that tariff money that China's supposedly paying us to in some way um, make the farmers who are suffering under the, the trade war whole, right? So he's literally, in a way, really kind of saying almost directly that uh, that he's taking the money from China and giving it to his voters. And so... Which is a complete I, lie. Uh, that is not the yeah, case not at all, which I talked about in my opening. That's just completely false. And also, it's anathema to Republican economic orthodoxy. I mean, the, we are... That the fact that Republicans aren't aren't screaming about this part of it is just another disappointment. But um, you talk about in your column, you made uh, an interesting an interesting point. You talk about Trump's economic populism and what motivates that, um, that he doesn't really necessarily want to solve this problem because he can use this as a he thinks there's, this is a political win. You say Trump's economic populism remains operative only in areas that satisfy his xenophobic nationalist impulse to exaggeratedly attack other countries as enemies hell bent on fleecing us on immigration and, and trade. I see this as similar to the immigration debate he doesn't really want to solve the problem he needs a villain it's 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 sort of like there's an interesting tension there right because i think he'd probably be thrilled to announce a big deal with china at mar-a-lago right right um but especially if it were you know one in which there was actual um you know progress made in terms of combating the unfair trade practices that China does engage in. So I, I sometimes feel like there's an actual, I wanted to get into this in the piece, but kind of ran out of space. There's really a, a meaningful tension between his whole great deal maker stick and his whole uh, economic xenophobic nationalist stick in which he's really trying to essentially punish other countries for supposedly ripping us off for a long time and get them back. Right. Mm-hmm. It, and, uh, and I think he kind of, you know, lurches from one of the one to the other. And I, I think he'd like to make a deal, but a, a mediocre deal that he'll get widely criticized for is almost certainly uh, not preferable to no deal. And, and so interestingly, the Times actually reported this over the weekend fairly directly that Trump used a a uh, continued trade war as a plus for him if the alternative is a bad deal. Right. He has to have a foil because then, yeah, he, can, then right. he can and still point to them and say, see, I'm still being tough on China. They're the ones they tanked it, not me, because I'm your I'm your favorite president and the greatest deal maker in the whole wide world. <laughs> and plus, I'm, I'm plus I'm getting those tariffs and giving you the money. Right. Which is all not true. Um, yeah, that, you know, situation. goodness. Um, I just wanted to ask you one last thing about the, the primary as we head into election season. Yeah, yeah. I know that you have a very strong thoughts about Elizabeth Warren's viability, especially in the heartland, which which is which ties into what's happening with with this with the tariff situation and places like Iowa, it's killing the soybean farmers and 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 the Rust Belt. Um, 
talk a little bit about the fact that you think that people shouldn't write Elizabeth Warren off. They shouldn't just hand the nomination to Biden, that you think that she's got some real viability. How come? Well, so what I've been trying to say is that there seems to be a presumption among a lot of pundits and even some more centrist liberals that Joe Biden would be the candidate to win back working class whites. And and I want to be clear, like that may be true. I don't know if it is or not. But what I've been trying to say is, why are we presuming that to be true simply because he's a moderate, um, an economic moderate? If we accept the analysis of 2016 that is often put forth, that uh, Trump won in the, uh, an unusually high uh, percentage of blue-collar whites and generated high turnout among them in the industrial Midwest because he managed to get around to Hillary's left on, on economic policy and to cast Hillary as a creature of the neoliberal establishment so and so forth and so on. If we accept that, then why would Biden be the one to win those voters back? He comes from that same wing of the party, mm-hmm. right? Um, whereas Elizabeth Warren um, has offered and so is Bernie, by the way. But Warren, to me, is is kind of almost more comprehensive uh, and detailed. Elizabeth Warren has offered by far the the most comprehensive and 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 uh, intricate agenda for those uh, suffering under the quote unquote rigged economy that Trump ran against of any candidate. Um, so why wouldn't she be the one to win back those voters? Why do my point? What I'm trying to get people to do is at least back up the claim that Biden has an automatic um, uh, hold on them. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I, in full disclosure, I um, Joe Biden is someone that I could easily vote for, and I think he yeah. has the best. I think he has the best chance against Trump. I thought your argument about huh. giving Elizabeth Warren um, a look was interesting. I I don't agree with her economic policy obviously i think it's a it's a little too far to the left for me for my liking right, right. but i think that she will give um, Joe Biden a, a, a challenge during the debates. It will force Biden to have to come out and discuss where he where he stands on this because he's been very light on policy. And I oh, think that's that you know, yeah. and, they, and they've had their their back and forth. They have a they have a history, right. folks. They have a history, and um, I think that this we'll see that play out on stage. And I'll be very curious to see how Biden handles that, especially since it's against a woman, and you know he's had to fight through these Me Too, I think unfairly, but these Me Too kind of um, issues with him being too handsy and things. So I'm just going to be curious to see how that plays out on the de- on the debate stage. But so I thought that's that was a interesting. really interesting point. Yeah, yeah. for sure. I mean, I, I, it hadn't even occurred to me, but of course, right? Elizabeth Warren is going to directly challenge Biden yep. since he's the front runner. That's right. And she's going to have, as you say, she's going to have a real philosophical framework and 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 uh, a historical argument with him within which to kind of do that. And and that will, I think, be important. And by the way, you know, you could be right that he's he's the most electable against Trump. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not at all saying that isn't the right. case. I'm no, just saying that, right? Like the assumption that he is is, the, is what I question. I, I think he's got a. I think reporters and and pundits should be examining the premises of that assumption. Right, and if he is then he needs to not rest on his laurels and be prepared for this attack from the left or left flank because it's going to happen. Um, he's got to come up with a, yeah. with a better response to her on the, the issue of 
bankruptcy and corporate America and the financial institutions because that was their battle, you know, 12, 15 years ago when um, when she was not in the Senate, when she was, um, uh, you know, the Consumer Financial Control Board stuff, the Consumer, um, you know, Protection Board stuff, um, that that issue, that tension with him is going to come back. So for if my advice yeah. to Biden and his people is you better be prepared for that. <laughs> be prepared I would for think it. they will be. Right. I would think they will be. I, you know, uh, it, it's, it's absolutely true that he's going to have to defend that whole. He, and by the way, I think as part of that, he's going to be pressed directly on the fact that Hillary Clinton lost to Trump and that they're both more centrist uh, Democrats. And so why should we be assuming that Biden is the candidate to win back all those uh, Obama Trump voters? And I, I think that would that's a, that's going to be fascinating to see yeah. how he addresses that. Yes, it is. And, uh, you know, I would argue that he doesn't have the baggage that Hillary Clinton has. It's just not the same level of contempt for Joe Biden as there is for Hillary Clinton and the Clintons. That's true. All that sure, that goes along yeah. with it. So people may even listen to him more so than they would to her, even if it's the same message. Messenger matters. As someone who's been well, in political that, communications absolutely. for a long time, the messenger matters, yeah, yeah. believe me. And, so. and I think also we'll end up having, to, if it turns out that he's way more competitive with, with uh, Midwestern blue-collar whites, we're going to have to ask ourselves uh, whether um, whether their association with the the more centrist wing of the Democratic Party was actually the reason Clinton lost. So other people's narratives will be challenged, too. Absolutely. Well, we've got a lot to a lot to pay attention to as the election begins to unfold. Um, we still have a good For year sure. to go before people actually cast ballots. But we're, we're with with Biden in the race and all 21 others. It's um, it's certainly not going to be dull. Greg Sargent, thank yeah, you so much. Sure. Uh, again, check out his book, Uncivil War. Democracy in an Age of Trumpian Disinformation and Thunderdome Politics. And be sure to check out his column, The Plumb Line, uh, at The Washington Post. Greg, thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much. That's it for this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara. Thank you so much. Another big thank you to Greg Sargent for joining me. Check out his book, Uncivil War. I think that's, I haven't read it yet. I, I need to take a look at it, at it because I think it's uh, an interesting title but um be sure to follow me on social media on instagram at the tara setmayer on twitter at tara setmayer or at honestly underscore tara for honestly speaking and i'll be with you again next week have a great week everybody